make reference to that sticker that Michael Talley talked about. I know some of you are thinking, I will not put a, I will not put a Christian symbol on my car because then I have to drive like one. <laughs> You've got an altogether different problem. <laughs> it's good to welcome you for this homecoming weekend. After the American Revolution, our new United States needed a formal agreement for self-government, so they adopted what were called the Articles of Confederation, but those things did not last very long. You see, they had some very serious weaknesses. For example, under the Articles, the federal government did not have the power to tax the people, and immediately you say, that does not sound like a weakness to me. So in the summer of 1787, a constitutional convention was convened in Philadelphia to draw up a new charter, and the Constitution of the United States was born. And it's said that one day near the end of the convention, a, uh, as Ben Franklin left Independence Hall, a lady ran up to him and, and asked, sir, what kind of government do we have? To which Franklin, after moments of thoughtful consideration, replied, a republic, if you can keep it. Not a democracy in the purest sense, because that would be mob rule, like some of our churches, but a government of officials elected by the people to represent them, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The question, that question, what kind of government do we have, has been asked, I'm going to suggest, a number of times since then. It's a frequently asked question when visiting a new church. Because you see, if you have been to more than one church in your life, and I suspect in a room this size with many people, we, we could take a little survey and we would have lots of churches represented. In those churches, you've likely experienced more than one kind of church government. And you have likely seen some that worked and some that didn't. Uh, on the one hand, maybe you've seen people in leadership abuse their authority. On the other, you've seen situations where no one seemed to be in charge. And all of it may be a bit confusing to you. I mean, we pretty much all uh, agree that Christ is the head of the church, but, but, but functionally, how does that work itself out in, in, in this group? That's what I want to talk with you about this morning on Homecoming Weekend, the very exciting topic of church governance. How we believe the Bible teaches local churches are to govern themselves. It is true that the churches choose different forms of, of church government. If you, if you study them all and boil them all down, that you, would, you would find there are basically three, maybe four kinds of church governing structures. They, they sound a lot like denominations, but they, they come from Greek words and they actually extend beyond those particular groups. Uh, first, for example, is the Episcopal form of government, which comes from the Greek word episkopos. That, that word is usually translated bishop or overseer uh, in your Bibles. This kind of government recognizes a bishop as the highest ruling authority over a local church or usually more likely a group of churches. The most obvious example is the, uh, is the bishop of Rome. We know him as the pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and then going down from in a very hierarchical fashion, you have the cardinals and the archbishops and the bishops and, and, and beyond. So you get to the local church level where the priest or maybe the rector is the final authority. But you got to understand that the bishop is 
like the chief overseer. Second, on the opposite end of that is the congregational form of government, which is very popular in U.S. evangelical churches because this form is most democratic. It most resembles our U.S. Constitution, so like we like it. It, it, it's, a, it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It gives us a say, a voice in church decisions. Everybody gets a voice, whether you're spiritually qualified to make those decisions or not. Now, you see, the question that I would have you ponder is, while this form of government is most American, is it most biblical? Incidentally, the congregational form of government often finds itself held hostage Uh, at the hands of a a very powerful few in the church, usually those who give the most money, or maybe those who have been around the longest. Uh, Or it can be held hostage by a a dominating figure or a dominating pastor. He's a dictator under the guise of democracy, which which actually leads then to the third form of government in many, many churches, even if they call it something else. It's called the CEO or the senior pastor model, where the senior pastor is the highest authority at the local church level. What he says goes. I don't know, it kind of sounds right to me. (laughs) Actually, that kind of structure scares me to death and carries very little accountability because if the chief kahuna what's in charge goes off, so does everybody else as they follow him to off the abyss. Fourth kind of government is the Presbyterian form of government, which comes from the Greek word presbyteros. Now, that word is usually in your Bible translated elder. Uh, in, in this structure, the spiritual authority of the local church is invested in a group of elders. Not, notice, I keep saying elders, not one elder per church. That would be the bishop or the pastor dictator model, but a plurality, plural elders in each church. Now, who those elders are, how they are appointed, how long they serve varies from church to church, but the bottom line is the elders are the governing authority in a local church. And so maybe you're here this morning and maybe new to Alliance, or maybe you don't even know, asking the same question as the lady asked Ben Franklin, what kind of government do we have here? Well, we actually think that we have the most biblical form of government. If we didn't think it was most biblical, we'd change it. It is interesting that a survey was conducted among church leaders of our very small denomination, and the question was asked of these church leaders, do you believe the Scriptures indicate a preference in local church governing structures? And about half of the respondents, most of whom were pastors, said no. And I want to say, what, do you read the Bible? I obviously strongly disagree. I believe, I believe that the Presbyterian or elder form of, of government is the most biblical, what I, would, what I prefer to call elder leadership. Now, I know that we come from a variety of, of churches, and so I want to say this, I want to say this very lovingly, uh, but nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament do we see an example of congregational rule. While it does fit our U.S. Constitution, it doesn't necessarily fit the Bible. 
We do see a congregation acting and making decisions, such as when they selected the first deacons in Acts chapter 6, which we're actually going to talk about in a couple of weeks. But that came at the instruction of and under the authority of its leaders. It's actually easier to find an example of Episcopal or bishop rule in the person, let's say, of the Apostle Paul as he directed the various churches that he founded. And perhaps that's what we see in what I could call his apostolic delegates, namely Timothy and Titus in their respective places in Ephesus and Crete. But, but even then, Paul directed them that elders be appointed in every church. Every church is to have elders. Don't just take my word for it. Let's look at some other um, uh, passages. First mention of the term um, elder. There we go. The first uh, mention of the term elder is uh, in relation to the church is found, as you might expect, in the book of Acts, where the church is born. We find it in chapter 11. Without explanation, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas were sent with a gift from the church in Antioch, that's up in very southern Turkey, uh, to the elders uh, in the church at Judea, which is in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, these guys just appear out of nowhere. The next time that we find them is in Acts chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas were traveling through those churches that they had founded on their first missionary journey, like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and, and Derbe. And they, we read, quote, appointed elders for them in every church. Notice, plural elders in each individual singular church. Not one elder per church, but a plurality of elders. Later, Acts chapter 15, we arrive at the Jerusalem council and the apostles and elders. Here these guys are again to meet to discuss this law salvation issue for, for Gentiles. Again, they appear without explanation, but we see that they had the responsibility to discuss and make decisions regarding truth and its practice. We then get to Acts chapter 20. If you want, you can turn there this morning because that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And we see Paul call for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come meet him. Notice, elders, plural, at the church in Ephesus to give them some instructions. And, and at this point, if you're paying attention, we remember this. Hey, that's where Timothy is uh, when Paul wrote 1 Timothy. That's right. He's in, he's in Ephesus. And in these instructions that he gives in Acts 20, that Paul gives, he infers the responsibilities of elders. Before we look at those responsibilities, let's look at a few other passages. As, as you know, Paul wrote most of his letters, we call them epistles, during those missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. There were three of them, maybe one more that took place after um, the book of Acts. And in his letters, he says things like this, to the church at Philippi. Remember, he's in prison in, in, in Rome when he writes to the Philippian church, and Timothy is there with him, and he says, we read, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints, that's holy ones, in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers, that's that word episkopos, and and deacons. I find that very interesting. I'm writing to all of the saints there, and yeah, I'm including overseers and, and, and deacons. Yeah, you're, you're holy ones too. But what? once recently, I was listening to a, a, a sermon on, on, a, on a podcast, and I was listening to this uh, guy who's teaching the book of 
Philippians exposit this verse, and he's, he gets to this, including the overseers, and he just says that's, that's the pastor and the deacons. And I, I might have screamed at my iPod, not really sure, but I wanted to go, no, it's not the pastor, unless you're a dictator. It's the overseers. It's the elders. It's the pastors, plural. Just skipped right over that. Titus chapter 1, Paul says, for this reason... Titus, I left you in Crete so that you would set in order. It's kind of doing the same thing that Timothy was doing in, in Ephesus. To set in order what remains and appoint elders, that's that word presbyteros, in every city. In, in 1 Timothy 3, which, which we'll get to next week, in Titus 1, Paul gives the very extensive list of qualifications for elders. Uh, it, it seemed to me that if we're going to talk about their qualifications... We need to know first what they are. What, what are these elders? See, I might add that both James and Peter mention elders in their letters. In fact, they're all over the New Testament. So again, the question I want to answer this morning is this. What is an elder anyway, and what do they do? And if you are one of our 15, and we have 15 elders at Alliance Bible Fellowship, if you're one of those 15 elders here today, I would encourage you to pay very special attention. You might even take notes because everyone else is going to hear what they can expect from you. How we are as elders to serve them. So let's read, let's go to Acts chapter 20 and, and read Paul's instruction to elders beginning in verse 28. But actually in verse 17, we read these words from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, okay? Plural, elders, singular church. So he's called these elders from Ephesus where Timothy is now, and these are the instructions that he gives to them. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, that's how long Paul was in Ephesus, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So what is, what, are, what is, an, what is an elder? The very first thing I, I want you to see is the Scripture actually uses three different words or terms to refer to the elder in, in the local church. And I'm going to suggest that those three different terms refer to one and the same person or one in the same office, okay? The first one, um, it obviously, is elder, again, presbyteros, that's found back in verse 17 where Paul called for the elders to come meet him in Miletus. The, 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 the title is used... This particular title for this group of leaders is used most extensively in the New Testament because it was a title quite familiar to the Jewish people. You see, within the nation of Israel, elders were responsible to lead the nation. They were the, they were the nation's leaders. That started actually way back under the time of, of Moses. And so it was this natural term to be used within the church to speak of leaders. Elders, leaders. The second term is the word overseer. Again, that word episkopos. It's found in, in our text of verse 28. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, meaning they were elders, but Paul also calls them overseers. 
In fact, in Titus 1, where Paul uh, gives uh, the qualifications of elders to Titus, we, we read this in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, remember, we just read this, to appoint elders in every city. And then he moves from there to give the qualifications for elders and says in verse 7, for the overseers, the episkopos, must be, be above reproach. Here, here's my point. He uses the terms interchangeably. Elders are overseers and overseers are elders. Some suggest that the, that the office is, is elder and that the duty of the elder is that of overseeing. I think that's a pretty good explanation. The third term is also found there in verse 28 where Paul says this, be shepherds of the church. The, the, the words be shepherds, actually one word in the Greek is the verb verb form of the word poimen, which is translated throughout the New Testament as shepherd. In fact, there's only one place in the New Testament where the word is translated differently, and that's of all places when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says that, 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 that God has appointed in the churches pastors and teachers, shepherds and teachers. You see, pastor is the old English word for someone who takes care of sheep. Pastor, then, is our English word for this function of the elder as shepherd. So an elder is an overseer in that he has the responsibility of spiritual oversight, and he is a pastor in that he shepherds the church. So an elder, an overseer, pastor are all one and the same person or office, whatever you want to call it. Let me show you one other important passage that demonstrates that these terms, titles, are used interchangeably by a different author. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read these words, Therefore I, Peter, exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, there's that word, pastor, the flock, uh, of God among you, exercising oversight. Guess what word that is? Be an overseer, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now look at this. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. In other words, to the, the people that are given to you for your oversight, for your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, and when the chief shepherd could be translated when the chief pastor appears, that's Jesus. See, every once in a while, a really popular uh, uh, title for, for churches is the term senior pastor, and that's what my card says, senior pastor, but I want you to understand something. The true senior pastor, the true chief shepherd of this church and of every local church is a guy named Jesus. He's in charge. A pastor is a shepherd, is an elder, is an overseer. So what then are the pastor's, shepherd's responsibilities? Let me, let me start by telling you what they are not. Because you see, we have a tendency to think of a, of a board, like a board of elders or a board of directors of a corporation or a business, and, and we think their job is to be like policy makers and financial officers and fundraisers and administrators. And while an elder board of a church may be involved in those things, if that is all they do, or even if that is most of what they do, they are not fulfilling their primary 
responsibilities, their primary functions. So what then do they do as they oversee the church or as they shepherd the flock? What is it that we can expect them from them? Four things um, from this and other texts. First, they are to lead the flock. Think about it. Is that not what a shepherd does? He doesn't drive the sheep. He leads the sheep. Paul actually says this in a number of different ways. In this passage, they are to keep watch over the flock. In 1 Timothy 5, they are to direct the affairs of the church. We'll get to that eventually. And in 1 Timothy 3, uh, hopefully we can do this next week, he says, but if any man does not know how to manage his own household, they're talking about his own family, his own household, how will he take care of the church of God, which he later in a few verses calls the household of God. Elders then are to lead Direct, govern, manage, and otherwise care for the flock. They have the responsibility to oversee the ministries of the church to make sure that those ministries are fulfilling their God-given mandate to make disciples. I want to say that again. We are to make sure that our ministries are fulfilling the God-given mandate to make disciples. Listen, there are churches that do an awful lot of things, maybe even good things but do not necessarily fall under the responsibility of a local church. That's what we are to be about. Second, in addition to leading the flock, they are to feed the flock, which is a critically important function of elders. How do they feed? Very simply, through sound instruction of the Word of God, be that in official or unofficial ways. Which is why one of the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3, again next week, that they are able to teach. This, we see, is a huge responsibility for for Timothy. Over and over, throughout this letter, just did a little survey of the letter, sitting in my office over and over, he says things like this, fight the good fight, Timothy. Keep the faith. Guard the good deposit. Be constantly nourished, Timothy, in the words of the faith and sound doctrine. You see, this was not what was happening in the church in Ephesus. Prescribe and teach these things. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation and teaching. Pay close attention to yourself, Timothy, and your teaching. He says elders are worthy of double honor, especially those whose job, whose task is preaching and teaching. And he'll end this letter by saying, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Do you not think that sound doctrine and teaching was important to Paul? And it ought to be to this church. Titus chapter 1, Paul will elaborate when he says that the elder is holding fast or holding firm to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort, both exhort in sound doctrine. We hear this all over and over in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It's the elder's job to feed the sheep, teaching from the Bible. Which leads to their third responsibility. It's somewhat related. Elders, as shepherds, are to protect the flock. A major part of their work is to protect the local church from false teaching. This is what was going on in Ephesus. He told Timothy, I left you there to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, 
other heterodoxy, other teaching. He told Titus, refute those who contradict. Stand up to them. That's what shepherds do. Paul gives these Ephesian elders in our text, Acts 20, the very serious charge. He says, I want you, listen, you've got to be on your guard. Listen to me, elders present this morning. We need to be on our guard. False teachers, and in keeping with the metaphor that he uses in Acts 20, he calls them wolves. Will, will come from the outside seeking to work their way into the church and destroy it for their own selfish motives. And he says they, they, they can even come from within, from your own number. Uh, they, they will arise and distort the truth. So elders, protect the flock from false teaching. Which of course requires that you know the truth. Remember Paul is talking to Ephesian elders and I'm suggesting that he speaks prophetically of the challenges of false teaching, which is what now Timothy and 1 Timothy is having to deal with. And that false teaching we have seen likely came from among the elders. Listen to me. Which means, just because a person has the title pastor, or bishop, or elder, or teacher, just because they have a large following, or a large church, just because they're on Christian TV or radio does not mean they are right. It is why I regularly and will continue to regularly point out false teaching. Because you are my sheep. And I do not want you exposed to them. If, if, the, if the church in Ephesus was exposed to false teachers as they moved in among them, how much more we are with everything that is available to us in print and in internet and in, in, in television. You are exposed to false teaching all the time. It is my job to protect you, and I will. Four, even though it, I don't have this written down, and I will because it's kind of fun. Four, elders are to, to meet the flock's many other practical needs. If we were to go on reading in Acts chapter 20, we read, in everything I, he's talking about himself, Paul showed you that by working hard in this manner, you elders meet the needs, help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. We don't know, this is not in the Gospels, we don't know where he got this, but it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when Jesus himself said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Listen, elders, in caring for the flock, we are to care for the weak. We can do that in a number of different ways, but we need to care for, for weak sheep. In James 5, we can do that, he says, through praying. Is anyone among you sick? And that word is actually weak. Are you relationally sick? Are you, are, are, are you um, spiritually sick? Are you physically sick? Then Call, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And we do that here, because elders are to meet the practical needs of the body. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, wow, being an elder um, sounds an awful lot like being a um, pastor. Uh, you've got it right. That's exactly what they are. Elders are pastors, and pastors are elders. You see, Lloyd... Uh, Scott Burns, uh, Doug, and I have the privilege of serving vocationally. We actually get paid to be elders. But, but I want to tell you that we have a great group of elders at this church. 
I want to say this very clearly. I want you to hear me. I do not run this church. Neither do the staff elders, staff pastors run this church. We serve with a group of very capable uh, men, gifted men that God has given to serve you. And I can tell you without hesitation that they love you and that their desire is to serve and to lead you. And you may be sitting there and you may be aware of a situation in your own life or someone else's life and you say, well, they haven't done a very good job. To which I might respond, and you haven't been always a very good sheep either. <laughs> We're not perfect, but we desire to, to care for you. Allow us to do that. Very quickly then, as we get ready to wrap this up, let's just read 1 Timothy 3 to see the qualifications of an elder. I, 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 want, you to, I want to read this because I want you to think about that um, this week. I don't, this thing is just really bugging me today. I want you to think about these things this week because elders have massive responsibilities. That's why these qualifications are extremely high. Look at 1 Timothy with me, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Just going to read it. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man desires, or if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, ready, above reproach, husband of one wife, whatever that means, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Because if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the household of God, which is called the church, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited? In other words, elders need to be mature in their faith. I'm going to tell you right now, one of the biggest problems for pastors, and I can say this because I know, because I am one, one of the biggest problems for pastors is conceit or pride. I had the privilege of speaking this week um, at, a, at, a district, at a conference of pastors in Raleigh. Guess what I'm going to tell them? Pastors, don't be conceited. Problem for us. Don't be conceited. Fall into condemnation incurred by the devil, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and snare of the devil. That is an intimidating list of qualifications. I want you to think about them. I'm not going to take the time to go through them. It's been suggested that you can group these qualities in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5 in the following four categories. Just going to put them up in relation to self, right? All of those in relation to family, um, all of those in relation to others, uh, uh, yeah, thank you for following. And then in relation to the faith. Last one on there, a man who desires the office. I'm going to share these with you because it is our job, it is the church's job to select or to appoint those who meet these very onerous qualifications to serve as elders. And next week I'm going to suggest that there are three steps, if you will, to this selection process of elders. Three, three things that must be met besides these qualifications. You say, well, what are they? In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said this, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you um, overseers. In other words, the first step in becoming an elder is the very call of the Holy Spirit of God on your life. 
then we as a church, as we select our elders, we look for them to meet these qualifications and affirm that they do. And then the third thing is that we see that the man desires the office or desires the role to serve as an elder. So three qualifications, the call of the Holy Spirit, the affirmation of the church, and the desire of the man himself. This is significant. As we close this morning, you may be sitting there thinking, this was exciting. This message did not really have much to do with me since I am not an elder. Let me share a couple of final thoughts with you. First, as I said at the beginning, you can now know what you can expect from your elders. You can know what their responsibilities towards you are, even though we will not always do it perfectly. But they are massive responsibilities. So I encourage you to do the following two things. You ready? Number one, I want you to pray for them. Pray for them. They have a huge task. Second, I want you to obey them. You see, if they are to lead, that means the flock is to follow. Obey sounds like a hard word, but that's what Hebrews 13 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. This would be unprofitable to you. I'm asking you to pray for your elders and to submit to them. And next week we will look at the very significant qualifications required to serve as an elder in God's church. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is, this, is a, this is instruction to us as a church, not just to elders. Paul is writing to Timothy and expects him to share this with the church because there were elders who were not doing their jobs. In fact, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. So he, he's dismissed some elders and he has given Timothy the responsibility of appointing elders. And it's necessary they meet these very challenging qualifications. And so, Father, I ask right now that you would help our elders to serve wisely, to serve well, and then help us as a church to submit, to, to obey them, because they give an account for our souls. And we pray this in Christ's name.